If you're listening to this podcast, it's because you're interested in Iceland. Or maybe you're planning a trip, and you probably have questions. Lots of questions. Circa's new concierge feature, which is now open in Iceland, will change how you travel. You can connect with us directly through the Circa app, and we'll put you in touch with your very own local concierge in the land of fire and ice to ask any questions you have. No matter when you're traveling, let us help make your trip one to remember. For a limited time only, the Circa Concierge is completely free. So download the Circa app from the iOS store and connect with us. You've got questions, we've got answers. Circa, love the world you live in and we'll help you explore it. Welcome to Circa. In this, the first part of a two-part War and Peace episode, you'll hear a fascinating and often missed story of the wars that have shaped Iceland. We're going to tell you about a lot of places you can see here that will bring these stories to life. But don't worry, there will be maps, notes and info on the places mentioned in these guides in the Circa app. So just sit back, put your headphones on, This is a story like no other. Circa. Love the world you live in, and we'll help you explore it. There's no shortage of stories about how Iceland has changed the world. At least, not in Iceland. It's actually a bit of a national obsession. Let me give you an example. The French Revolution, Marie Antoinette's famous declaration, let them eat cake, remember? Well, the Grimsvatn volcano erupted here in 1783, and for several months, volcanic gases affected the climate in Europe, which led to crop failures across the continent which led to a shortage of bread, which led to a growing unrest and the threat of starvation, which led to the French Revolution. See? Also, we ended the Cold War. No, not really, but we played a bigger role in both historical events than you could ever have realized. Iceland was named the world's most peaceful nation by the Institute for Economics and Peace for 13 years running. In this episode we're going to explore part of Iceland's history that is seldom seen by tourists. It's a story of peace, yes, and war. Before peace, there was revenge. Let's start at the beginning, shall we, with the arrival of Norse settlers in Iceland during the 9th century. The Norwegian settlers were fleeing the tyranny and oppression of the king, Harald the Fair-Haired. He refused to cut his hair before uniting all the warring fiefdoms under his rule, hence the nickname. Local chieftains either joined the king, were killed, or left for a recently discovered island far up in the Atlantic Ocean. Iceland became known as the country of those who refused to bend the knee and from here began an experiment to create a nation from scratch, 20,000 inhabitants, and by design, 
no centralized government. The settlers were mostly from Norway, but genetic research has indicated that a larger number of the women were of Celtic descent, as well as the male slaves brought over. The period that followed is known as the Icelandic Commonwealth, and it was plenty violent. But as there was no centralized government, it was not war in the modern sense. Instead, there were struggles, skirmishes, attacks, revenge killings, murders and assassinations led by chieftains that ruled clans. These leading characters and plotlines, like something out of The Godfather, became the basis for the sagas, a Game of Thrones-like series of narratives. The 40 or so books, known as the Icelandic sagas, are said to be the first novels ever written and have influenced literature worldwide. If you were to underline words like kill, attack, stab, chop and burn in the English translations, you would think there were lyrics by the heavy metal band Slayer. There are tales of men cutting each other in half, splitting heads open and driving spears through each other's bodies. But the sagas have come to be viewed as the origin story of the Icelandic nation, and reading them can transform your experience of places all around the country. The small town of Borkarnes, roughly an hour to the north of Reykjavik, was settled during the earliest days of Iceland, over a thousand years ago, and was the home of Eitl Skallagrimsson. Eitl was a warrior poet, and according to the saga bearing his name, called Eils Saga, he had become a poet, a drinker, and also a killer. By the tender age of six. There is a multimedia display at the settlement center in Borgarnes that brings his story to life. You can visit it seven days a week between 10 and 5. Incidentally, Borgarnes and its surroundings was also featured in the film The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. And Eidl Grimson is the original name of Iceland's longest operating brewery. Try their award-winning German-style lager, aptly named Eilskutl, for the gold of Eil. The sagas feature characters like Eil and Grettir the Strong, who choose violence as a means of conflict resolution, and they are not the exceptions. Honor and fame was often awarded to those who were successful in their violent exploits. At the time, Iceland had no centralized authority, to manage law and order, but it did have a democratically run parliament called Althingi. The Icelandic parliament continues today and is now the oldest such institution in the world. The original site, Thingvellir, is now a UNESCO World Heritage Site, a national park and a major tourist attraction, 40 minutes northeast of Reykjavik. The natural setting of giant cliffs, grassy fields and water flowing in surrounding rivers and lava fissures made it a perfect choice for the biggest yearly gathering. Thousands attended from every part of the country. Today, it is a famous tourist destination, which Icelanders proudly take any foreign visitor to see. This place is as close as you get to a mandatory visit when in Iceland. In the 10th century, Thingvellir was the only place where feuds could be laid to rest. At Parliament, men were sometimes banished, outlawed, or forced to pay compensation. The violence of the sagas reached a peak with the Battle of Örlygstadir 
in 1238. It was the Icelandic version of the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, if you are a fan of Lord of the Rings, or the English Battle of Hastings. This fight was part of a larger civil war among various clans that was happening at the time. 2,500 men clashed in a battle that purportedly, and surprisingly, killed only 60 men. This was the last major battle before the King of Norway took control of Iceland, and it marked the end of the epic, violent Sagas. The Sagas would later come to represent the lost past of glory and heroism, manifested in the saying, Þeir hetjur riðum hérð, or when the heroes rode the shires. The battlefield from the Battle of Örlistadir is located by the highway number one, or Ring Road, shortly after the village of Varmahlíð in the north of Iceland. We'll drop a link in the notes. If you look carefully, you'll find a tiny plaque by the side of the road at a little parking lot marking the spot. So, you can imagine, as a kid in school, how confusing it was to be sent to the principal's office for some minor fight in the hallway while being taught that our sociopathic ancestors were the nation's heroes. Still, the best way to understand this first chapter in Icelandic history is to read the sagas. Not only are they available in English, but, in my opinion, they're better than the original old Icelandic version due to the straightforward translation. Reading them will make the countryside come alive with the stories of the past. I would also suggest a visit to the National Museum in Reykjavik, where you can see over 2,000 relics from Iceland's earliest period through present day, or the Saga Center in Kvolsvöllur, 90 minutes east of Reykjavik, which has a detailed exhibit on Njálsaga, one of the most lauded of all the sagas. Occupation The glory associated with conflict and violence faded with the end of the Commonwealth in the late 13th century. A civil war between clans, some of which were backed and influenced by the King of Norway, resulted eventually in the signing of the Old Covenant, which officially brought Iceland under Norwegian control. Over a hundred years later, following the unification of Norway, Sweden and Denmark in 1397, Iceland became a sort of floating property, until finally landing under the control of the King of Denmark in the 1500s. The period between then and the beginning of the 20th century is generally viewed as a cultural slumber. Instead of people being killed by sword and spear, they were killed by hunger, volcanic eruptions and disease. It is portrayed as a time when independent thought and exploration gave way to religious dogma, fear and wars of ideology. It felt like a long losing battle. In Iceland, the old Norse religion had been dominant through most of the Commonwealth. Icelanders worshipped gods of fertility, poetry, wind, wisdom, and war, especially war. In death, a warrior went to Valhalla, the Norse version of heaven, where he would fight during the day and party at night. Around the year 1000, a Christian conversion introduced Catholicism. In the 16th century, Reformation moved the people from Catholicism to Protestantism. 
In the end, it was the Catholic bishop Jón Arason and his two sons who lost the religious war and their heads. Iceland's violent past didn't always remain buried in the past. But now we are going to fast forward to the first modern war that directly shaped Iceland's politics. From the 1870s to the start of World War I in 1914, there had been an exodus of Icelanders moving to Canada and the United States. Around 15% of the population left because of hardship and lack of land. Large volcanic eruptions, including Askja in the highlands, did not help either. The 1,245 Icelanders that went to fight in World War I were of Icelandic descent, but living in Canada. They were known as Vesturislandingar, or West Icelanders. The war was a distant reality to the 91,000 inhabitants of Iceland. The price of goods and the impact on the shipping trade were of greatest concern. Still, the war that raged on the continent had a massive, if indirect, impact on the island. One of the effects of World War I was that in 1918, Iceland was granted autonomy by Denmark, a kind of milestone on the path to independence. Iceland had requested to sail under its own flag to minimize the risk of attack by German submarines. With Denmark agreeing to this symbolic act of statehood, there was no turning back. The next chapter would not see Iceland remain so isolated from world events. On the 6th of May, 1940, by the harbour front in Reykjavik, local taxi drivers noticed the German consul driving to the harbour every hour after midnight, staring out to sea. Something was up. Germany had just occupied Denmark, the ninth European country to fall to the Nazi regime. It gave the Germans access to the best maps and intelligence about Iceland, while the occupation of Norway offered direct access to the North Atlantic Ocean, a key transport route for war supplies being shipped from the still-neutral United States. As Hitler's forces marched on and the resistance began to organize, it was only a question of time. Who would first arrive on the shores of Iceland? Iceland's history with Germany went deep, all the way back to Hanseatic merchants in the 15th century. There were strong economic and cultural ties. The Icelandic writer Gunnar Gunnarsson was widely read in Germany and was the only Icelander to personally meet Hitler, which, some say, cost him the Nobel Prize in literature. Before the war, Germans used Iceland as a staging ground for scientific research in the natural sciences, especially geology. The Nazis viewed Icelandic people as a pure Aryan race, and the Sairas as heroic and grand. The arrival of the German consular, Dr. Werner Gerlach, in 1939, was a turning point in Iceland's relationship with Germany. He soon grew frustrated at a nation he considered of low moral standing, festering with communist elements and lacking the pride he felt this area nation should have. There were certainly Nazi sympathizers and supporters in Iceland, mostly young men and teenagers, but, by and large, the general public did not support the Nazi ideology. Leading up to the war, Iceland had refused 
a request by German state airline Lufthansa to operate in Iceland. The news flew across the world, a tale of a small nation standing up to the powerful Adolf Hitler. Consular Gerlach occasionally voiced his frustration and scolded the Icelandic foreign minister for keeping company with a Jew. He was told to mind his own business. Iceland was a place that didn't bend the knee. Around 3 a.m. on May 6, 1940, 800 Royal Marines stepped on land by the harbour front, just in front of the current flea market, and carried out the first British occupation in World War II. They were met with a small group of local unarmed policemen. A drunk man shouted in futile resistance, then left. For an occupation, this was as uneventful as it gets. But when the British soldiers saw a giant swastika on top of one of the largest buildings in town, they must have wondered, wait, where the hell are we? The swastika, which was the reverse form of the symbol used by the Nazis, was actually the logo of the Icelandic shipping company, Eimskipafjelaith. The building is still there, next to the famous downtown hot dog stand and flea market, but the swastika is not. After arriving in Reykjavik, the Royal Marines arrested the German Consul General Gerlach, closed the roads, broke into the telecommunication building and took over the local high school to use as accommodation. That's how you occupy Iceland before tea time. When British soldiers came to arrest Gerlach, they found autographed photos of Heinrich Himmler and Albert Göring, personally addressed to the Gerlach family, and Gerlach himself setting fire to documents in the bathtub. The British occupation of Iceland set off a chain reaction that would play a huge part in bringing the United States into the war, and also in bringing independence to Iceland. But the occupation was not popular with the Icelandic government. After getting its autonomy from Denmark in 1918, Iceland had pledged to forever be a neutral country with no military. This felt like a betrayal of core principles. But, on a local level, the war had a much more personal and intimate effect on the people. For Reykjavik, a city of 38,000 inhabitants, a decline in fishing in recent years, which happened periodically, had resulted in lean times. The occupation brought gainful employment, candy for kids, a perspective of the outside world that was new, thousands of handsome soldiers in uniform, and a party scene like the country had never seen before. Hi, everyone. Circa's recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Situation Lookout posts and bunkers had to be built. 
The need for bacon and eggs created a new agricultural sector, and the washing of uniforms a boom for local laundry services. Fish and chip shops popped up in every other basement in Reykjavik. Britwork, or Breta Vinnan, was the most labor-intensive part of the occupation, and the need for housing and military airports was urgent. Icelanders, as it turned out, were very well suited for hard work. Before World War II, it was not uncommon for Icelandic men to have only a few months of seasonal employment in fishing and farming. This created a culture of hard work for short periods, and the mentality is still present today. A kind of ethos that promotes getting things done quickly or last minute. It's summed up by the Icelandic saying, it'll sort itself. Soon it became clear that expectations working for the British military were low compared to the grueling seasonal work in Iceland. There was a lot of standing around, smoking and chatting, until an officer was spotted by someone on lookout. The older generation predicted the end of the Icelandic work ethic. One of the projects completed during this period was an airport at the bottom of the dome-shaped hill Öskjuhlíð. This area, which was once a barren rocky hill, now holds an idyllic forest populated with rabbits, as well as the relics and remains of a war that changed Iceland. Öskjuhlíð is walking distance from downtown Reykjavik. Here, massive stone walls crisscross the middle of the hill, like some ancient monument. They were built to stop oil spilling from the giant oil tanks hidden between the walls, in the event of air attacks. This is where young and bored soldiers kept their eyes to the sky for long, uneventful shifts. It's a place worth exploring, and you will find various information plaques explaining the history of the ruins. A short stroll further past the airport leads to Reykjavik's only swimming beach, Nautolsvík, where old World War II barracks, dome-shaped corrugated huts called Nissan huts, have been converted into a café called Brakkin. Such huts were constructed all over Iceland in areas known as camps. After the war, they became cheap housing for poor locals until most were torn down to make space for new developments. Check the notes for a link to major World War II sites in Reykjavik and around the country. As World War II dragged on, more soldiers from the Allied forces arrived in Iceland. Eventually, more than 40,000 foreign soldiers would be stationed here, in a country of 120,000 inhabitants. It began to disrupt a very important balance. It took a while for it to be named, but eventually a fitting name was adopted. Ástandið, simply the situation. Upon first arriving in Iceland, UK forces were given orders not to use force against the locals, under any circumstances, and to stay away from the Icelandic girls. Unsurprisingly, this proved hard for the young soldiers as they settled into the monotony of occupation at the edge of the world. Reykjavik felt lively and full of entertainment, far removed from the dangers of war. Locals and soldiers mixed in clubs like the Otfellow House and Hotel Borg, and it soon became clear 
that the smartly dressed and polite soldiers had an advantage in the eyes of many local girls. Hotel Borg still offers Reykjavik's best hotel location, a ground-floor restaurant, and a long-awaited nightclub is on the drawing table for 2023, while the Otfella house across from the city hall is only a distant memory of bygone days. As more soldiers arrived, they created their own venues and events, where local women were offered free transportation, free entry, and free booze. The local men didn't stand a chance. There was a romanticism that swelled as soldier-swept girls onto dance floors and into relationships. But there was also the fear of an explosion in unwed single mothers and stories of prostitution. The government set up a committee to investigate, called Austansnemtin, the Situation Committee. Young women were spied on, the largest such operation in Icelandic history, and girls were sent to correctional farms. The draconian reaction was a manifestation of fear. Fear of the corrupting effects of the occupation. But it also said a lot about how culturally homogenous the society was. There were about 300 marriages between local girls and soldiers during the war, and many caused rifts among families. Many women left with their foreign boyfriends or husbands, while others were left behind as single mothers. The treatment of many young women led to a historical sense of guilt in Iceland that was seldom confronted, but also a justification or blaming on women for inappropriate behavior. Perhaps less known at the time was Iceland's refusal to admit Jewish asylum seekers during the war. As an occupied country opposing war, the government attempted to maintain a facade of neutrality. Taken to the extreme, it meant distancing itself from the reality of war and its human consequences on mainland Europe. Was it influenced by racism, something that also informed its request of the American government to not place soldiers of racially diverse backgrounds among the occupying troops? While the various tensions of the occupation were felt deeply among the people, the fighting itself remained offshore. It was the ocean around Iceland where one of the most fateful battlefields of the war would take place. That's where we'll be heading in part two of this incredible history of one of the most peaceful nations on earth. Thanks for listening to the first part of Iceland, War and Peace. Be sure to queue up part two and then check out the other episodes in this Iceland guide for more on Iceland's unique food, its wild weather, and a story about two murders that rocked this peaceful nation. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or download the Circa app, where you can also get pictures and maps and notes on this episode and more. Maybe you'll want to sample our guides for New York, Hawaii, Mexico City, and many more to come. Circa. Love the world you live in, and we'll help you explore it. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. 
They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader.